Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today I have uh, a very special guest, uh, Kenneth Samples from Reasons to Believe. And I got that right, right, Ken? Reasons to Believe, right? That's where that's <laughs> yeah, I yeah. All right, good. Just want to make sure I get all these apologetics ministry uh, names, uh, reasons, reasons for faith, reasons for this, reasonable reasonable faith. Uh, it can get a little confusing at times. Uh, but yes, I have uh, Kenneth Samples here with me uh, from Reasons to Believe, and we're going to be talking about a very, very important topic. Um, as you know, uh, the primary focus of this channel uh, tends to be apologetics, broadly speaking, presuppositional apologetics, more narrowly speaking. And of course, I'm a Calvinist. I'm a Protestant. Um, and I very much hold firmly to the, the solas of the Reformation, one of which uh, is going to be the primary topic under discussion here today. We're going to be discussing a very important topic of sola scriptura. And so um, in just a few moments, I will have, um, is it doctor samples? No. Or, I know you, most people don't care, but. Uh, just Ken? Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Well, well in just a few moments, I'll, I'll have Ken on to, to kind of navigate uh well actually i'll be leading the questions but he'll be navigating uh the answers and how we might approach uh this very important topic of sola scriptura but first just a couple of announcements um tomorrow i'll be moderating a debate between chris date and michael miano um michael miano, a full preterist or a hyper preterist as it's sometimes called and chris date takes a more uh orthodox view with regards to those issues and uh the resurrection so the topic of the debate is going to be will resurrection and so uh you guys definitely don't want to miss that that's going to be um 7 eastern time um and so uh, that will be tomorrow and then on the 13th back on uh, those of you who really enjoyed our look ross um interact with jason having kind of the young earth creationist old earth creationist uh dialogue back and forth from that discussion plan was Ross on to work out. I was able to get Dr. Lyle on as well. So we're going to now stick to the original plan and we're going to have just Dr. Uh, Ross to come on and answer some questions over creationism. And so uh, that's on the 13th. Also in September, I think it's engaged in a debate uh, on the topic, does God exist? to uh, that. Also, one more thing, and then we will officially start. I think we're making very good time, all right, 429, good. Um, uh, we just reached over a 1,000 uh, subscribers on YouTube. Um, still uh, small, but growing rapidly, and we have uh, unlocked the Super Chat um, uh, feature on the YouTube channel, so if you're looking to uh, support in any way financially, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Of course, um, we know that God is sovereign and provides, and so your prayers also would be uh, very, very, very much appreciated. Uh, with that said, why don't uh, you introduce yourself and kind of give us a little bit of uh, background on you, your ministry, and what you do, um, and then we'll jump right into the questions, uh, Ken. Go, go for it. Yeah, Eli, thank you. It's good to see you again. I appreciate you and appreciate your, your ministry very much. Uh, I'm on the scholar team at, at Reasons to Believe. Reasons to Believe is a uh, science, faith, apologetic organization. Uh, Hugh Ross is both the founder and the president of the organization. And I've worked there, oh boy, I think I'm working on my 24th year. So it's been, been some time. Uh, I tend to be a little different in that I'm not a scientist. My background is in theology and philosophy. 
I grew up, I think I could probably describe it as a, a nominal Catholic. And uh, uh, I thought for some time about being a Roman Catholic priest as I got older and took my faith a little more seriously. When I was in college, uh, I began reading C.S. Lewis, uh, met Walter Martin, and that, that kind of led me to move toward an evangelical Protestant faith. So um, I've, I've had a lot of interactions with uh, thoughtful Catholics uh, as well as thoughtful Eastern Orthodox. And I think that this is a very important topic. I would call this kind of inner Christendom apologetics, if you will, which I would differentiate a little bit from our typical discussion with skeptics and atheists. But um, my, uh, in my book, A World of Difference, I have a chapter on scripture part of that chapter addresses the question of sola scriptura. Mm, very good. Uh, now, uh, would you identify yourself as, as a Reformed Christian? Or you Would you take the the, the label uh, Calvinist, so perhaps you'll get a, a better context from your theological perspective? Well, I, I would say this. Uh, I am uh, first and foremost a historic Christian, but uh, I'm a Reformed Anglican, and so my theology, I, I like the liturgy of the Anglican Church 39 articles are solidly Protestant. So you can call me a, a Reformed Anglican. And uh, again, I try to extend, uh, I, try to, I, I try to emphasize truth, unity, and charity in all of my discussions. Um, I don't always make it, but I try. All right. Well, you, you're pretty good at it. You're a pretty nice guy. I've, I've listened to some of your stuff. You're not the kind of guy that you, someone would want to throw something at out of anger. So uh, that, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, some people have been um, pointing out to me that there were some audio issues on my part. I just removed my headpiece, which is also my um, my microphone. So hopefully uh, those audio um, issues are fixed. Um, let's jump right into our topic then. Uh, we're going to be talking about Sola Scriptura. So why don't you explain to us uh, what is Sola Scriptura and what what isn't it? I know there's a, that, that thing that's a very important twofold way to approach. What is it and what it's not. Uh, why don't you lay that out for us, please? Yeah, very important, Eli. I, I think sometimes it is misunderstood. I think sometimes Protestants don't always have a clear angle on it. And there are times where Catholic and Orthodox as well, I think, um, may not grasp the exact position. Sure. Uh, first, let's talk a little bit about what Sola Scriptura is. Um, you could think of it this way. Think of it theologically. God has revealed himself uh, he's revealed himself in, in the book of nature. Uh, that's general revelation. He's revealed himself in special revelation. Uh, that's the inspired word of God, which would be the Bible. And the implication of God's word being inspired, we would get things like inerrancy, canonicity, as, as well as biblical authority. So sola scriptura would first of all say that scripture is... Uh, the final authority, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. Scripture is the final authority uh, in all matters of faith and practice. Uh, and it implies its sufficiency. It has no authoritative peer uh, and its clarity. That doesn't mean everything in scripture is crystal clear. Doesn't mean you won't have to work at understanding the Bible, but sola scriptura implies really three things that scripture is the final authority, that it is essentially sufficient and uh, a principle. Uh, the old word is perspicuity, we call it clarity. 
Okay. Now, now, what is it not? And I think sometimes this is even more important. Uh, to affirm sola scriptura doesn't mean that there aren't other legitimate authorities. Um, creeds are authoritative. Councils are authoritative. Human reason, the laws of logic. So sola scriptura doesn't rule out those other subordinate norms. Secondly, um, and, and this is important for our Catholic and Orthodox friends, sola scriptura doesn't repudiate the usefulness of tradition. But again, tradition would be recognized as a subordinate secondary norm in theology. Uh, I think there are times Protestants don't recognize or emphasize that tradition plays an important role. But for the Protestant classical position, it's always a subordinate role. Third, uh, sola scriptura doesn't rule out the church fathers or church history as a whole. Um, there's a great resource uh, found in the church fathers. I mean, I am a, I am a passionate uh, appreciator of Athanasius, Saint Augustine, uh, even Thomas Aquinas. So uh, it doesn't rule out our our value of the uh, church fathers. Fourth, it doesn't mean that all truth is found in the Bible or can only be found there. Uh, I think historic Christianity emphasizes the two books idea. So there's the figurative book of nature. Uh, God, God is the, the writer of both of those books. When they're properly understood and interpreted, they will cohere. And then fifth, it, uh, Sola Scriptura doesn't deny that the word of God was initially in oral form. I mean, the apostles when they were alive, were preaching, they were teaching. Uh, they had, of course, already the Old Testament, which was the inspired word of God. Uh, but scripture was gradually and slowly written. And uh, therefore, there was initially an, an oral element. But scripture uh, is that final, objective, only written word of God in the world. Right. So, so the issue is to say something to the effect of scripture or tradition is a, is a false dichotomy, right? It's not like that, that we have to choose between the two, right? There is a, a fruitful relationship between scripture and tradition, but it's, it's just that we don't hold tradition as kind of that final authority, as you said, with regards to, to scripture. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think there's a way of kind of picturing it, if you will. In my own studies of Catholicism and orthodoxy, I, I think that uh, the Protestant position, if you think of if you think of scripture and tradition as boxes, I would put the box of tradition on the bottom and the box of scripture on top. Uh, scripture is the supreme authority, the final court of appeals. I think the Catholic position, as I understand it, would reverse it. Uh, in the Catholic tradition, you have, of course, uh, it is affirmed that you have apostolic tradition oral tradition. They have the teaching magisterium. So I would see tradition above scripture. And then in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, I would see them kind of being side by side. Uh, years ago, Eli, I used to think that uh, Eastern Orthodoxy is just kind of another version of Catholicism. <laughs> I discovered it is clearly not. It is a distinct branch of, of Christendom. Yeah, that, that again, it's just, a lot of people understand Eastern Orthodoxy as kind of like the popeless Catholicism, right? Right. <laughs> it's basically, unfortunately, and I was one of those for a long time. Right, right. All right, very good. Well, um, 
there are a lot of attacks upon the doctrine of sola scriptura. And uh, what I want to do uh, through some of the questions here is kind of address kind of the, the common objections to sola scriptura. So now that you laid out what it is, uh, let's kind of address um, some objections that people bring up, some questions that people bring up um, on this topic here. So here, here's my first question for you. Um, how can one hold to sola scriptura when the Bible itself does not seem to teach sola scriptura? So in other words, where in the Bible is sola scriptura taught? That's a very important question. Um, I would approach it this way, Eli. I, I would say that uh, something doesn't have to be taught formally and explicitly in Scripture in order to be perfectly valid. Okay. I think the doctrine of sola scriptura, or Scripture's supreme authority, is taught uh, inferentially. We can draw inferences from Scripture. Uh, for example, a key passage is uh, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Let me read it very quickly. Sure. And how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed, theobunustas, breathed out by God. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I would say the essence of sola scriptura is found there. That right. is, uh, when you look at the passage, Christians are in a position where they're complete in terms of what they believe and how to live, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. I think that passage can be inferred that uh, Scripture gives us what we need to believe. It's sufficient in belief uh, and, in, and in life. But I think that there are other elements that go into it. And uh, I would put it to th this way, Eli. I think the strongest argument for sola scriptura is found in the life of the person of Jesus Christ. Okay. For example, uh, I would argue that Jesus Christ held scripture in highest esteem. He says, uh, scripture cannot be broken. Your word is truth. And whenever Jesus was in a dispute, either with the religious authorities of the day, Pharisees, Sadducees, he always appeals to Scripture, and he appeals to the Scripture with a clinching element. Uh, then finally, I would say Jesus even submits to Scripture. Uh, he talks about his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, scripture has to be fulfilled. And so I think a powerful argument, and maybe the best argument, is that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, held Scripture as having final uh, authority, a clenching type of force. Now, a Roman Catholic, uh, an Orthodox believer, I mean, they don't deny 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16. And right. so uh, the understanding that you just gave, uh, couldn't they argue, well, that's not a necessary implication of the text because it fits well within our framework, which we believe, Scripture being of utmost authority also gives provision for holding tradition at the level that they do. I, I think it's very important to recognize that uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and of course, when I'm now I'm referring to the Orthodox versions, the Catholics and Orthodox who really believe what's in the creed and all of those kind of things, not theological liberalism that's right. in the context of all of our belief system they have a very high view of scripture. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I think what we find there is that scripture is sufficient 
and and even if you appeal to other elements, uh, for example, Second uh, Thessalonians two fifteen, a passage that both our Orthodox and Catholic friends appeal to. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Well. I would say that Paul there is writing 2 Thessalonians. That's probably late 40s, early 50s. The apostles are still living. They're still preaching orally. Uh, all of the New Testament has not yet been completed. Uh, therefore, I think the, the interpretation there is there's no difference between the oral uh, presentation of God's word coming from the mouth of the apostles and then what they would write. What I do dispute, and I respectfully dispute it, that there is somehow an, an oral tradition that exists in the church independent of scripture. Uh, the apostles died, uh, they left the scriptures to us. So I would say, hey, um, uh, tradition is valuable. Now, let, let me mention uh, the Anglican context. Sometimes in the reformed Anglican church, we would say it's very important to understand scripture in light of tradition. But the Protestant position is that tradition is always a subordinate norm. It's a secondary norm. Okay. So I don't see any reason not to draw that inference from 2 Timothy 3. And I see no reason to think that the uh, Second uh, Thessalonians passage is teaching another norm of uh, authority. Mm -hmm. I so see both true. Yeah. So so you uh, so with regards to the biblical grounding for sola scriptura, it, it's not like there's a, a proof text. Right. There are aspects of scripture that seem to infer this when we reflect upon just the very nature of scripture itself. Uh, is is our notion of sola scriptura also wrapped up in the nature of scripture? Do you think you could unpack that for us? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let, let me say a couple things. I would say uh, drawing the principle of sola scriptura, scripture's final authority, uh, is not unlike how we think about the Trinity, where we draw inferences. Um, and, and I would say, again, sola scriptura, if you think about it theologically, uh, God has revealed himself. He's mm -hmm. revealed himself in nature. He's revealed himself in propositional truth, which is the inspired word of God. We see that in the Old Testament. He promises to give his spirit, which inspires the New Testament. So uh, authority is an implication of the Bible's inspiration. Because it's the inspired word of God, we can trust it that it's true, it's inerrant. We can trust that we can recognize its canonicity and we can appeal to its authority. Hmm. All right, very good. Uh, real quick, just a, a quick reminder for people who are listening in, uh, guys, uh, Ken will be taking questions. So if you guys have any questions, you can post them in the comments and towards the back end of the episode, we will uh, share it on the screen there. Um, and uh, he'll hopefully address what you're uh, what you're asking. So uh, please feel free to, to send those in. Um, and again, thanks for uh, super chats as well. There's another one sent in. Thank you so much, uh, Saints Edified. That's greatly appreciated. Um, let's move on then. So uh, again, I think that's, that's important uh, when someone asks, you know, where in the Bible does it teach Sola Scriptura? We're not talking about proof texting. We're talking about the very nature of Scripture as being the Word of God. We could infer this idea of the Scriptures being the ultimate authority. We find examples of Jesus appealing to Scripture as such in uh, uh, contradistinction to uh, appeals to tradition. 
He makes a differentiation between good tradition and unbiblical tradition. And I think those are all important aspects of uh, this discussion. But here's another thing I always hear, okay? And, and it, again, from Orthodox perspective, from Roman Catholic perspective, uh, people ask the question, isn't Sola Scriptura just a later development, right? It seems that the early church tended to hold tradition at the same level as scripture. And I think this is a devastating rhetorical question only because the average Protestant Christian is woefully ignorant of church history. And yeah. so because they're ignorant of church history, it's really difficult to, to combat. That's like, well, did they? I mean, okay. And then you, you throw a quote here, a quote there. It's like, well, I guess they did. And then that kind of puts the person back and starts, they start rethinking their whole life. Like what's going on? I never knew there was this long, rich history. How would you respond to the claim? This is a later development. Right. This is an innovation. The early church didn't hold to Sola Scriptura. How would you address that? Yeah, and, and that can first sound pretty devastating. I mean, if you accept the idea that for, for uh, 1,500 years, uh, there is no Sola Scriptura, and the, and the reformers are kind of pulling it out of thin air, that's uh, a challenge. But I don't think history supports that. Uh, for example, let, let me cite a couple sources. Yaroslav Pelikan in his book, The Riddle of Roman Catholicism. Pelican, by the way, early in life was a Lutheran. Okay. Uh, later in life adopted Eastern Orthodoxy. But Pelican says in that book that when the Catholic Church anathematized the Protestants, they were in effect anathematizing part of their own tradition because in the Middle Ages there were debates. And these debates involved questions of uh, what is the relationship of tradition and scripture? Is scripture the supreme norm? Are they equal norms? Pelican also argues there was debate about justification by faith. Was it merely a forensic act or did it also include sanctification? Uh, let me bring just a brief quotation from Richard Muller. Muller is a reformed scholar at Calvin Seminary, probably one of the leading Calvin scholars in the world. Uh, Pelican says this, uh, excuse me, Muller says this, the views of the reformers developed out of the debate of the late medieval theology over the relation of scripture and tradition. One party viewed the two as co-equal norms. The other party viewed scripture as the absolute and therefore prior norm, but allowing tradition a derivative but important secondary role in doctrinal statement. The reformers and the Protestant Orthodox held the latter view on the assumption that tr tradition was a useful guide, that the Trinitarian and Christological statements of Nicaea, Constantinople, and Chalcedon were expressions of biblical truth, and that the great teachers of the church provided valuable instruction in theology that always needed to be evaluated in light of scripture. Okay. So the idea that there is no sola scriptura until Luther, uh, I don't think is well supported. The the Catholic thinkers in the Middle Ages were, were debating all kinds of issues. And uh, Eli, authority is always the critical issue. It's, it's the issue against uh, with Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox. Sure. It's the issue in, in Islam between the two major branches. Authority is a critical issue. Uh, so I, I think there is kind of a selective reading on the part of our Orthodox and Catholic friends where we don't read uh, it that way. And so two sources would be Richard Muller and Yaroslav Pelikan. Hmm. 
Uh, would you say that the uh, throughout church history there are conflicting views in the church fathers with regards to this authority question? I mean, it's not as as kind of univocal as, as many people present it. Uh, is there um, is it a valid criticism to uh, towards the person who holds to tradition and scripture being of equal authority? Is it a valid criticism to point out perhaps competing voices throughout church history, making church history a helpful guide, but not shouldn't be something that should be our standard. Is that a valid point or am I getting something wrong there? I think it is a reasonable and, and valid position. There are certainly church fathers who would emphasize uh, apostolic tradition, uh, but you know you can read other scholars. Uh, Tom Oden, for example, in his book, The Justification Reader, he argues that in the church fathers, you have justification by grace alone through faith. Mm -hmm. um, and you have uh, you have competing voices. And of course, that's the point of Sola Scriptura. As uh, remarkable as Athanasius is, as wonderful as St. Augustine is, as, as amazing as Thomas Aquinas is, all of them have to be tested in light of Scripture. Hmm. Very good. Um, all right. So, and there's, a, <laughs> that's a thumbnail sketch. <laughs> Again, church history is very very broad very very wide and of course right. you're going to have people uh gravitating towards certain sources whereas other people you know i think uh matt slick over at carm he has a section on roman catholicism uh entitled uh my church father can beat up your church father uh, and he kind of gives uh, it sounds like something matt slick would uh would, would make up uh and he goes through some competing and conflicting views within the early church fathers again the, the early church fathers are vitally important. Please don't uh, take the Protestant perspective as underappreciating church history. We need to read the church fathers, but um, you need to understand what we're saying. Scripture is the authority, and we have conflicting accounts, conflicting um, beliefs with regards to that question within the church fathers. And so we've got to take those things into consideration. And, and if I could add a point to that, Eli, um, uh, you know, we look at someone like St. Augustine, uh, I would argue, and others have, that Augustine may be as influential to Protestants as he has been to Catholics. Now, you know, you look at somebody like Calvin, and I see Calvin as kind of the systematic theologian of the Reformation. Calvin quotes uh, Luther around a hundred times. He quotes Thomas Aquinas around a hundred times. He quotes St. Augustine 4,200 times. Mm. Calvin's case is that the best in Catholic theology can support our perspective. Mm -hmm. And many and the magisterial reformers, whether Luther, Calvin, Cramner, they see themselves in that Augustinian tradition. So, you know, the, there, there is an appeal to church tradition and there is appeal to the respect of the church fathers. Uh, now, now, my Catholic friends are going to disagree with me here, and that's okay. I think you could make a case, and I'm happy to, to cite a passage or two if you'd like. Sure. I, think, I think that Augustine and even Thomas Aquinas have such a high view of Scripture that it's a reasonable inference that they viewed Scripture as having an inherent inspiration that was above tradition. That they would definitely disagree. <laughs> They'll say, hey, you grimy Protestant, give us back Augustine. Yeah, that's not, you know. I, uh, I'll let you borrow him, but I want part of him as well. <laughs> okay. And, and uh, I can cite those passages or it's in my chapter in a world of difference. 
Okay. All right. Very good. And people might definitely want to check that. Uh, a world of difference. Uh, and and you know what I appreciate about what you do, and I know I, I do follow you on Facebook, and you do uh, I do get your your notifications when you post your blogs. Uh, you like to write little bios and little tidbits of of some of these early church fathers and things like that. I cannot uh, overemphasize to people how important it is. Uh, this is one area that I've been lacking in, and I'm 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 an apologist. I go around and I teach and think. And this is one area that I have not done an um, adequate amount of study. And, and as I look into it, I realize how important it is and how much I'm missing out. And so hopefully uh, in my studies, I can kind of focus a little more on church history. But this is vitally important to know your history, to know the development of doctrine so that we're able to kind of clearly put forth a defense um, of what we think is, is very much grounded in Scripture itself. And so I, I, I would say, Eli, simply this. There are plenty of things that Augustine and Thomas Aquinas lean heavily in mm -hmm. a Catholic uh, direction. Sure. But they're, they're, I'll give you an example. Augustine wrote more than 5 million words. He cites or references scripture some 40,000 times in mm. his writings. Wow. So uh, Protestants also see themselves in that tradition. And Protestants can appreciate uh, Thomas Aquinas even though there are many things in his writings we clearly see as defending a Roman Catholic viewpoint. Mm, and I see something similar about Athanasius and Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm. All right. Um, okay, so here's another common uh, question that comes up. Uh, doesn't Sola Scriptura make the individual reader the final authority and interpreter? So the idea is, you know, well, it's just up to your interpretation. So uh, how would you respond to something like that? You know, I, I, I I think it's important to recognize, I think it was Alistair McGrath who called sola scriptura a dangerous idea. Now, of course, in science and in philosophy and even in theology, by a dangerous idea, we mean something that turns the paradigm upside down. Um, it's they're certainly the case that uh, people can misread scripture. It's certainly the case that uh, people can read into scripture but, you know, the reformers talked pretty carefully about a historical and grammatical interpretation. Mm -hmm. Scripture has to be handled very carefully. We have to look at the grammar. We have to look at the genre, the context. We interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. We interpret difficult or obscure passages in light of the, the clear ones. Um, well, you know, I could argue as well, and I do it respectfully, um, but I would argue even the Catholic interpretation of the biblical text involves an interpretation. And since I'm not uh, ready to grant uh, the Pope having infallibility, I would say uh, I can make my exegetical case. So certainly Sola Scriptura involves, Eli, the tremendous necessity to be careful and to be circumspect. Mm -hmm. And sometimes Protestants are not circumspect. And th there's a time where maybe we need to be more careful in the way we do biblical exegesis. Sure. Uh, what I often hear is, you know, the Protestant will make the, the claim, listen, the word of God is, is clear. Yes, there are difficulties there, but God has revealed himself in language. Uh, we were able to understand language. Uh, we can apply exegetical tools to understand what a text is saying. Uh, but then the claim would be, well, well, when you do that, you're coming up with interpretations the church has never held, you know, and of course those are sola scriptura, you know, sola fide, you know, all of those important things. 
how would you address it within the within the course of a conversation yeah. when someone says, "Hey, these interpretations are just uh, they cause us uh, to pause because they're out of line with what the early church believed." I, I think those are fair questions, and I, I think we need to face them as squarely as we possibly can. I would say first of all that you know when you look you look at the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed. Uh, Catholics affirm all of that. Uh, Eastern Orthodox certainly affirm the Nicene Creed. Um, and so there is a commonality of, uh, you know, Protest Orthodox Protestants don't dispute the early councils of the church. They affirm the Trinity, the deity of Christ. They affirm the atonement, the resurrection, the second coming. There is a classical unity. So when Protestants are described as interpreting everything in fundamentally different ways, no, that there's a basic Catholicity that all of the branches of Christendom affirm. Uh, now, there are some differences, the, the question of tradition and authority, the question of grace, faith, and works. But I think it is uh, established that in the Middle Ages, there were debates about those and even Catholic thinkers arrived at differing points of view. Hmm. So I think the idea that Protestants just interpret the Bible willy-nilly, uh, I, um, I, I mean, I could bring up, for example, uh, in 1054, the Eastern and Western churches split. I think they split over less consequential issues than the Protestant reformers did. Sure. Now, both of them claim to be the one true church. Well, who is it? So uh, I think we need to share the idea that there are differences, but uh, there's a lot of varieties of Catholicism. Uh, there are liberal Catholics, there are traditional Catholics, conservative Catholics. Uh, there, there are all kinds of postmodern Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, you have the Coptic tradition and debates. So I think we need to be fair. Uh, I think Protestants should exercise greater unity, but I, I, would, I would appreciate the Orthodox and Catholics maybe admitting that they're not as unified as they necessarily tell us. Now, with, with regards to Roman Catholicism, I mean, there's often the claim that you guys don't have an infallible interpreter. And so how do you know that you are deriving the correct interpretation of scripture? And so they'll always appeal to kind of, well, we have Mother Church to protect us from the error and Mother Church is being guided by uh, the Holy Spirit. I remember um, I, I would work in youth ministry. And so I was uh, attending a youth event at a church. Um, and <laughs> outside the church, there was a man uh, who had a very large sign. It was a very wordy sign. It is the Roman Catholic Church is the one true church that has been guided by the Spirit for the past 2,000 years, all on one side. <laughs> And so the assumption is the spirit is guiding the Catholic church. And so the spirit, you know, my sheep hear my voice sort of thing, right? He guides us into truth and the church has protected uh, the truth from all this error and confusion that comes about by not only the ancient heresies, but the heresy of Protestantism, as it would be uh, said. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I, I, I've heard the same, same thing. I, I would say this, Eli. I, I would say let's go back and look a little bit at the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic claims. Those two churches differ about the exact authority that the Pope has. Is he is he first among equals? Is he simply the leader, but there is a, a co-equality with the church patriarchs, or is he the vicar of Christ? Is he the is he the uh, the Pope? 
Uh, and there's also differences uh, about some of other ideas relating to Mary. Uh, I think it's a fair statement, Eli, to say there are most of the time Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics agree with one another against the Protestants. But there are times where the Orthodox agree with the Protestants against the Catholics. There are other times where Catholics agree with Protestants against Orthodox. So this idea that there was unanimity, there was never really any change. Well, what happened in 1054? Mm. Why were those, those serious differences so different, so strongly different that it split Christendom? So I'm a student of history. I'm a passionate uh, lover of uh, the church fathers. Uh, and again, I try to be very, I try to practice what I call the golden rule of apologetics, treat other people's beliefs the way you want yours treated. Now, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean I agree, but it means I try to relate them accurately. So I'm not, I'm not persuaded that the, what I think is a bit of a triumphalist claim on the part of either Catholics or Orthodox can really be fit with what we know about history. Hmm. So I guess it'd be a valid, you know, someone's like, we have unbroken consistency, 1054, except for that. <laughs> yeah, I okay. look, all, all of the, none of the branches of Christendom does everything right. And, okay. and none of them is, is perfect. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, Okay, so my next question would be, uh, with regards to, and this is, I mean, if you're a Protestant Christian defending Sola Scriptura, you always hear this. Uh, if Sola Scriptura is biblical, then why does it result in so much confusion and division? Consider the countless denominations that there are brought about by the acceptance of the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. So how can Sola Scriptura be true? It's caused so much division. You guys have so many different denominations because you guys don't know what you're doing. But the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church, we have a unity. We have a, a mother church to guide us. You Protestants, you know, you're all over the place. And all of this division is evidence that you guys are completely confused and uh, don't have the truth. How would you respond to something like that? I, I would say a couple things. Uh, first of all, I would say that I think Protestants should strive for greater unity than they have now. Okay. Uh, I really wish the magisterial reformers, I wish Luther and Cramner and Calvin and Knox, etc., had sat down and and hammered out issues so that they could have presented uh, a, a unified Protestant thought. So uh, there are times where I think denominationalism is scandalous, but principled... Uh, principled protest is is appropriate. I mean, after all, the Catholic and Orthodox Church split with each other. Uh, there is a time where you have very serious differences and you and you can't uh, you can't agree. But I'd also say this, Eli, um, there is a continuity in Protestantism. I mean, again, all of virtually all of the branches of Protestantism either affirm the Apostles' Creed or something like it. Okay. Uh, there, there is a consensus in Protestantism. Here is a, a book by uh, J.I. Packer and Thomas Oden, uh, One Faith, that talks about the consensus. So, again, there aren't 30,000 denominations. I hear that, and it's incorrect. Okay. And I think there, at times there's an exaggeration. Uh, all of these branches, Lutheran, uh, Methodist, Anglican, Baptist, 
what do they affirm? They accept the councils concerning the Trinity. They accept the councils concerning the incarnation. Uh, so there, there is continuity. Now, I'll, I'll, I will raise this. I had an atheist say to me one day, um, Ken, you make an interesting case for the truth of Christianity, but, uh, but which Christianity? Aren't you hopelessly divided? Well, I, I bring him to the creeds and I say, how much unity is there here? You know, Eli, if I could say this, and I say this to my Catholic friends, my Orthodox friends, but I also say it to my Protestant friends, there is a tremendous amount of unity. I mean, look at the Nicene Creed. It's a very large slice of what Christianity is, but it seems we focus only on the points of difference. Mm. Well, I could turn it around and point differences, does the Spirit proceed from the Father alone, or does the Spirit proceed from the Father and the Spirit? Is is the Pope the first among equals, or is he uh, the vicar of Christ? There's also there's also deep common ground, and uh, that, that would be the way I would respond. Okay, all right. Um, and, and again, there are what we would call essentials of the faith, right? That's right. Right. So, so I also often hear this, um, we're often asked, how would you differentiate between essential and non-essential doctrine? Is it simply an appeal to look what the church has believed? Uh, how can we biblically um, identify essential doctrine versus non-essential doctrine? And I think that's a very, very fair question. I mean, in many ways, the creeds give us kind of a foundational element. We see the Trinity, we see the two natures of Christ, uh, we see um, various elements, but the creeds don't say everything. Uh, the creeds don't tell us what is the final authority. The ecumenical creeds of Christendom don't tell us the exact relationship between grace, faith, and works. So uh, Protestants have come along and said, look, we accept the council largely the early councils of the church, um, and yet we think there are distinctives in scripture, uh, and those would be the solas, that salvation is solely by grace, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I don't think Orthodox and Catholics teach uh, works righteousness. I think they have an affirmation of the primacy of grace, but they have a different understanding how how grace relates to the human will and cooperation. So Protestants have things that they want to bring to the forefront that they believe are clearly taught in scripture. Hmm. All right, very good. Um, my next question is, what does the Bible say about tradition and its authority? So we have this, this scripture or tradition. Of course, we embrace both keeping scripture as kind of more uh, foundational, more ultimate its authority. Um, but what does the Bible say with regards to the words of, of what's considered scripture and tradition. Yeah, very important. I, I think that, uh, I think there are times where, where I, I think there are times, Eli, where we Protestants don't realize how strongly we are influenced by Catholic thought. Okay. Uh, that is, uh, I'll give you a number of examples and I'll get to tradition. Uh, with regard to Mary, uh, why couldn't Mary be viewed as uh, one of the uh, examples of the followers of Christ? Aren't there many things about Mary that we could affirm? But Protestants, because of that reaction, because of an exaltation of Mary by the Catholics, we tend to, we tend to respond in a way of kind of ignoring Mary. 
we don't have to uh, we don't have to honor her the way the Catholic Church is to, to appreciate it. I think something similar with tradition. I think there's a lot of tradition that is very valuable. Uh, in the Anglican tradition, we tend to think, read scripture in light of tradition, see the, the end points of emphasis. Uh, where I think the major difference would be is uh, in 2 Thessalonians, when Paul talks about tradition, I think he means the oral words of the apostles, which are the equivalent to what we find in scripture. But, you know, who wrote the four gospels? Largely, we know that through tradition. What, how many times did we have debates about ca the, canon, the canonical books? Uh, we learned from tradition. But, but of course, uh, taking that further, uh, why didn't the Pope just, why was canonicity such a long and difficult process? Why didn't the Pope just step up and say, no, it's these books? Sure. Maybe the Pope didn't have that kind of authority. So, so tradition in a Protestant context is seen as a subordinate secondary norm. But very, very valuable, uh, unless you're a Protestant that reacts to everything uh, that the Catholics affirm. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, but, but what did Jesus say about tradition? I mean, did Jesus speak, speak about tradition throughout his ministry? Jesus, of course, had some pretty contested debates with Jewish religious leaders, okay. uh, both Pharisees and Sadducees. Of course, that opens up the context that Jesus is a Jew. Uh, he re relates to the Torah, to the Tanakh, uh, to the Jewish traditions. Uh, but I, I think it's very clear when Jesus talks about scripture cannot be broken, thy word is truth, uh, Jesus sets uh, Jewish tradition as a secondary norm. And uh, may I point out again, I th I, the reason why I accept sola scriptura is I think the Lord Jesus Christ uh, made scripture the final court of appeals. Hmm. All right, very good. Um, well, you did address Second uh, Timothy two fifteen. I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians two fifteen. Um, but let, let's dig in a little deeper. How should Protestants respond uh, to a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox person when they bring up Second uh, Thessalonians two fifteen as evidence that hey, you have uh, the written word and you have the oral, um, and you know they argue that these are both uh, equal in authority. Yeah, I, I think I would come at it this way. I, I would say, look, um, while the apostles were living, I mean, the, the apostles didn't appear to be immediately concerned about writing things down. I think because they were making converts, they were preaching, <laughs> they were teaching, and the church was growing. Uh, and yet uh, there is the recognition that the apostles would not live forever. And uh, therefore, you have the emergence of the canonical Gospels. Paul's epistles precede uh, that. Uh, now, of course, our, our Orthodox and Catholic friends are going to make the case uh, that what you have is uh, the bishops uh, are going to be extended that kind of authority. So you have an apostolic type of authority. And I think that there is evidence from some of the church fathers. I'm thinking of Irenaeus and others that make a case like that. But my, my position would be, um, if there is an oral tradition that is apostolic on nature, in nature, and is on the authority of scripture, where is it? 
what exactly are those apostolic oral traditions that are on equal par with scripture? And are they any different than what's already in scripture itself? Hmm. Uh, I, I, would, I would question that. And again, I would put the burden back on all of our branches. Um, the Orthodox and Catholics both make the claim that they are the true church. And they, and, but they have fundamental differences about these kinds of issues. So, right. I think it. I think it is more reasonable to recognize the value of tradition, but always evaluating it in light of the objective word of God. Mm. And, and again, if if there were oral tradition, why didn't the Pope step in and solve all of these kinds of problems? Mm. Yeah. All right. Very good. Um, I have uh, two more questions for you. Sure. Uh, they're not that difficult. You'll, you're doing fine. <laughs> um, and then we'll jump into some of the uh, the audience questions. We have a couple here um, that I think would be cool to address. Um, all right. Uh, you, you kind of answered a couple of questions in answering previous questions. So we'll just jump down. Uh, I think this is a very, very practical question. I think a lot of people need to pay attention to the answer here because this is important. How is ignorance of church history a detriment to uh, the Protestant Christian when seeking to defend sola scriptura against a Catholic or Orthodox perspective? Yeah. Well, uh, let me appeal to Yaroslav Pelikan. Uh, in his uh, Catholic tradition, he says that the church is always more than a school, but the church can never be less than a school. Hmm. Um, I wrote a book, Classic Christian Thinkers, where I introduce Irenaeus, Athanasius, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Pascal, and Lewis, I think in many respects, uh, our, our friendly competitors, our Orthodox and Catholic friends, um, I think the Orthodox and Catholic churches often do a better job in teaching their people to appreciate church history than we do. Now, um, I think Protestants have some strengths as well, uh, but somebody once said to me, if you went to a Orthodox or Catholic bookstore, you'd have all of these quotations from the church fathers, from the saints. You walk into a Protestant one, you have Bibles. Um, I, I, I think that there is a rich tradition. And, and again, um, I would define myself as an Augustinian. Uh, I think I think the most influential Christian thinker outside of the Bible is St. Augustine. Right. There are things in Augustine I don't agree with. I, I, I think Jerome was, was correct about the canon. Uh, right. I think the apocryphal books are a secondary canon. They're not on the level of the traditional canon. So there are places where I would differ with the great St. Augustine. But uh, Eli, I, I think we don't teach our people enough about church history. I, I think some of the difficulties we have is uh, that we're not introducing people to these great resources. Right. I think the moment I, I realized how much, uh, you know, I really needed to know with regards to church history and how important this is, I visited a church. It was a, a Reformed Baptist church. And on a Sunday morning, they, uh, I mean, the, the people in the congregation had folders in front of them and their pastor was walking them through church history. And it, we just happened to come in at a certain time and along the way. And they gave time to cover this topic. And it made me realize, like, this is not even like a Sunday school side class. Like, the pastor's addressing this from the pulpit. 
uh, and and teaching his congregation why it's so important to know uh, history. And it's unfortunate that a lot of churches don't uh, emphasize kind of that, you know, that historic side. It's almost like your branch of or your denomination existed, you know, just 20, 30 years and nothing else existed before that. It's pretty crazy. Eli, I, I can only tell you that if I had not, if I had not read Athanasius on the incarnation, if I had not read the Confessions, City of God on the Trinity, if I had not read uh, Summa Theologica, if I had not read Blaise Pascal, I, I would think that my Christianity would be so much less. Right. That doesn't mean I always agree with all of these largely Catholic authors, but church history is a, is a great resource. Mm. And I would say again, with respect to our Orthodox and Catholic friends, uh, they, don't, they don't own church history exclusively. I would argue we share it together. All right. Very good. Now, my last question uh, for you, and then we'll go into uh, the questions. Of course, we'll get the Super Chats out there first. Thank you so much, whoever contributed. I'll look through and, and kind of give you a quick shout out. I do appreciate it. Um, my last question for you is, what are some good resources? Now, not good resources. What are some great resources <laughs> for folks to get a firm grasp on how to defend Sola Scriptura? Yeah, well, very good. Um, I'm going to start off with my own work. Um, in my book, uh, A World of Difference, which, by the way, is a worldview text. It introduces the concept of the Christian worldview. But one of the chapters I have is on scripture, where I talk about uh, canonicity, I talk about inspiration, I talk about hermeneutics, and I talk about biblical authority. I look at some of the criticisms of Sola Scriptura from people like Peter Kreeft, uh, who was uh, a Protestant who became Catholic, and I list sources there, uh, but some of the sources I would I would recommend uh, Richard Muller in his writings about Calvin and the and the Reformed okay. uh, tradition, Yuroslav Pelikan uh, with regard to uh, the Reformation tradition. Um, those are kind of sources, and in my chapter I list plenty of them. So I'm I'm hoping somebody might go out and buy a world of difference. Yes, I do have a couple of, uh, of your books on Kindle, so I don't have them displayed anymore. I do have, uh, not your book, but I have somewhere uh, Athanasius uh, on the Incarnation, but yes, that was a, that was a good one. Very good. Uh, uh, but yes, okay, so those are, those are really good resources. Hopefully you guys will check it out, and definitely check out Ken Sample's uh, book. He's written a couple of books that are pretty awesome, I'd have to say. He's a very good writer. Um, I think you do a very good job simplifying without being overly simplistic, and I think that's a very good trait to have as an author. Uh, so I definitely want to encourage people to, uh, to, to look into some of your work there. Um, all right. Well, let's take some questions from uh, the, the audience who's listening in. And uh, Ken, I'm just going to put them on the screen. You'll see it there. And we'll do Super Chat questions first. Thank you so much. St. Edified gave uh, $5 in Super Chat. His question here is, Sola Scriptura critics claim that the Reformed tradition caused more harm, e.g. division, etc., by removing the authority of the church. What's your response to that? Well, uh, I'm I'm largely going to disagree with that. I mean, um, you know, again, I I would say let's have a little perspective. Uh, you know, take a look at the Belgic Confession, take a look at the Westminster Catechism, take a look at the uh, the Thirty Nine Articles. You know, one of the interesting things about being Reformed, Eli, is you can be in multiple denominations. 
I mean, you could have the Dutch reformed or you could have the Presbyterians, but you could, you could be a Congregationalist or a Baptist or an Anglican and still be reformed. Mm -hmm. um, reformed have a high regard for the councils of the church. The reformed have a high regard for the church fathers as, as a whole. Um, in terms of, of harm and division, um, I think in, in many respects, the Protestant reformers thought that the medieval Catholic church had lost its way to some degree. Mm. I don't think Luther, Calvin's, Wingley, Knox, Cranmer, I don't think any of them initially wanted to start a brand new branch of Christendom. I think they wanted reform. And through political and various reasons, it became necessary. So I would call the Reformation, two words, a tragic necessity. Mm. Now, now my Catholic and or Orthodox friends, or at least Catholic friends would say, it's just tragic. Some of my Protestant friends would say it's just a necessity. I sure. think it was both tragic and, nece and necessary. Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, Slam, thank you for uh, giving uh, your super chat here. He asks, do you think Sola Scriptura upholds the idea that unbelievers go to eternal conscious torment, or is that more traditional, especially after Augustine? Well, um, I, th I think that Scripture teaches that uh, those who do not know Christ, who have rejected Christ, will suffer eternal conscious punishment. Um, now, you know, I, I also dialogue and debate with my Seventh-day Adventist friends. When I worked at the Christian Research Institute, I uh, would, would talk with Catholics and Adventists. Those were two areas that I spent most of my time, which I would see very differently than I see Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Christian science, etc. I think scripture teaches that uh, the wicked go away into eternal conscious punishment. Um, I, I'm not persuaded by conditional immortality or annihilationism. Um, it's not pleasant to think about eternal conscious punishment, but when you sin against uh, an, a, an eternal God, you commit an eternal sin, which requires eternal punishment. Mm. If, if, the, if the righteous, if believers have eternal life, the same Greek word, ion, is used for eternal torment. So um, in, in that sense, I believe in the traditional view of hell rather than conditional immortality or annihilationism. By the way, years back, I, debate, I did a radio debate with Ed Fudge, who was at the time probably the leading biblical scholar advocating for annihilationism. Okay. I don't know if that tape's available anywhere, but... Uh, yeah. I put it on Chris Arnzen's program. Um, oh, very good. Oh, yeah, Chris Arnzen, yeah. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, Chris Arnzen's show is Iron Sharpens Iron. Definitely a good, uh, good show. It's got great discussions on there. Good uh, man. Yeah, definitely. Uh, here's a question from Daniel. Uh, if Scripture is the sole infallible word of God and it doesn't provide tools on how to interpret it, how can we know with certainty we have the right understanding? I guess the, I guess the question really is, um, the tools of interpretation, are those given in scripture? If not, you know, how do we, how do we know to interpret the scripture without going to an outside standard to interpret the scripture? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a thoughtful question. Um, I think I would come back again that um, Christianity doesn't emerge in a vacuum. 
it emerges in the context of historical Judaism. There are principles of, of, of uh, if Jews and Christians are people of the book, they're people of scholarship. Uh, in the Jewish scriptures, they talked about genre, they talk about context. Um, I, I think, I don't think scripture has to have a little brief manual of that says historical grammatical method. I think the context allows us, this, this is a way we would interpret any literature, by the way. Sure. You'd look at the history, the context, uh, you'd look at obscure passages in, in light of the clear. By the way, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox utilize that same content in, in looking through these issues. Hmm. All right, very good. And he has, I don't know if this is a follow-up to his own. He says, how does interpretation not become more fundamental than the text? Classical question, one that slightly bothers me. I don't know if you want to speak to that second part there. Yeah, I, Daniel, I appreciate these questions, and and I and again, I think we should, I think we should think about this broadly theologically. That God has revealed Himself. He's revealed Himself in the Book of Nature, and which is a figurative book, and in Scripture. In Scripture is unique because it comes in propositional terms. Um, I I think in many respects the Protestants would assert that most of the things in scripture are pretty clear. Um, sure, there are areas where they're less clear, uh, but, but I don't think that these principles of hermeneutics need to be uh, something that trips people up. I think that these are basic ideas about understanding language and being careful about its, its context. Mm. And I, I think I would emphasize that Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants, they they agree most of the time. Mm. So if Protestants are getting things so badly wrong, why do Protestants agree with Catholics and Protestants, uh, Catholics and Orthodox so much when it comes to things like the creeds and the councils? Mm. All right, thank you for that. Next question, Chris asks, uh, well, he really makes a statement, and maybe you could speak to this. Pelican converted to Orthodoxy from being Lutheran most of his life. Uh, yeah, he did. He did. He did. Um, uh, Pelican was Lutheran. I think he was Missouri Synod Lutheran, actually. When he wrote his book, uh, The Riddle of Roman Catholicism, right around 1960, he was Lutheran, taught at Yale for 40 years, later in life, embraced Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, what would I say? Well, remember that people changed branches of Christendom. Uh, he didn't he didn't accept the Roman Catholic position. Uh, I think he saw a, a greater historicity in terms of, uh, of orthodoxy. But remember, uh, Calvin and Luther were pretty serious Catholics, and they uh, gave that up and embraced Protestantism. Um, the reality, Eli, is that thoughtful, reflective people change branches of Christendom. And maybe they do it for any number of reasons. Okay. Uh, Chris also asks, uh, if scripture is the ultimate authority, what did you do in the first through third centuries when the New Testament was not canonized? Very good question. Um, I think Protestants look at this, this issue differently, again, than our Orthodox and Catholic friends. Um, and again, I say friends. Um, I, I really do wish that, I, I mean, I mean, even if you don't think Catholics and Orthodox are authentic Christians. Um, 
I think you can agree that we're all part of Christendom. And I, I think I would hope you could agree that maybe we could have common ground and maybe be worldview allies. I mean, I, I think some of the best defenders of the pro-life movement come out of the Catholic Church. So I, I want to emphasize as much as I can truth, unity, and charity. There may be places we can't agree, that maybe the positions are intractable. But here's a, here's a couple things. So uh, we have the canonical list, the 27 books mentioned by Athanasius. Um, if the Pope has the authority to canonize these books are canonical and these others are not, why didn't he do it earlier? Hmm. Why was this such a long process? Why do we have two brilliant uh, fourth and fifth century scholars like Jerome and Augustine debating these issues? Uh, so I would say that uh, all of the positions of Christendom have to look at challenging issues with regard to church history. I don't think this is uh, a, a question. I don't think that only Protestants struggle with the canon. Mm. And here is, I think, the way most Protestants think about it. The, uh, the church looked at scripture and they, they didn't give it something it didn't already have. It, it, they didn't look at it and say, we grant you infallibility and, and uh, inspiration. I think it's much more reasonable to conclude that the church immediately recognize the authority of scripture. Hmm. Um, and so that would, that would be the way I would, I would come at it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that concludes the questions here. A lot of comments here. I thought some more questions there, but um, I think that's it for, uh, for the, for the live chat there. Thank you so much. And thanks for those who um, uh, gave in the super chats. That's greatly appreciated. Um, just real quick, um, just a quick reminder again on the 13th, I'll be having Dr. Hugh Ross back on to discuss more old earth creationism. So it's kind of a one-on-one -on -one discussion where I'm going to be asking him some of my questions that I have with regards to old earth creationism, um, which will be a little different than the, the back and forth that we had last time he was on. Um, and then tomorrow uh, we have Chris Date debating Michael Miano on the question, will there be a physical future resurrection? And so I, uh, that's at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. So I do um, encourage folks to listen in. Um, I, I'm sure you guys will very much enjoy that. Um, that's it for uh, uh, for Ken here. I think uh, you did a really good job kind of giving us a, a broad overview of some of these issues and how we might respond to some of these objections. But of course, there's a lot more to study, a lot more to dig into. And so I do very much encourage people to um, uh, to do that and to look into those references that, that Ken uh, gave earlier on. Um, lastly, um, I do encourage people to check out Ken Sample's work on Amazon. You can check out uh, his books on Amazon. And of course, um, do you have articles and things like that on Reasons to Believe as well? I do. Uh, I have a Reflections blog that has more than 500 blog articles available. All right. Yeah, very good. Um, well, I Oh, well, someone says there's one more question. There we go. Okay. Well, can we sneak in one more question, Ken? Is that okay? Someone is pointing me to a question here. Let's go for it. All right. Okay. Sorry, Dan. Dan Dan is the guy who asks the most questions. <laughs> Let's see what he's... So I've been battling with Galatians 3. Is sola fide? Okay. Come on, man. This is sola scriptura. Don't sneak in a sola fide. I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, been battling with Galatians 3. Is sola fide a precondition for salvation? Especially on this text, a commentary would be useful as I've heard conflicting persuasive views. 
it's a very, very, very important question, a critical question. Um, again, I would say, as I look at Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, I don't think that they're works righteousness systems. I think both system believes in the primacy of grace. Grace comes from the sacraments of the church. Uh, it cooperates with, with the human will. So in a, in a Catholic context, you are saved by grace. It is through faith, but it's completed in works of loving obedience. I think our Orthodox friends would say something similar to that. I, however, when I read Romans and Galatians, uh, think that scripture's pretty clear that there is a difference between justification and sanctification, that we're, see we're saved by grace alone. It does come through faith alone to the glory of God alone. Um, and I, I, I would also say that I, I think that we ought to emphasize the importance of the differences, but also look at the unity. Um, Eli, at the end of my life, I hope somebody will say that Ken Samples contended for the truth, promoted the unity in the body of Christ, but was often very charitable. If they say that at my funeral, I'll be pretty happy. <laughs> okay. Well, you can say that slow. I'll write it down. Maybe if I make it to your funeral, I can say it. <laughs> I've already told my kids, they better sneak that in somehow. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, all right. Well, Dan, uh, Daniel, congratulations. You're able to sneak that last second question in there. Uh, that was that was good. Good, good, good move there. And um, I want to say something about you. Uh, sure. I want to tell your audience that Eli Ayala is a really good man. He is a thoughtful man. Uh, you can differ with Eli about apologetic methodology, but he's fair minded. I'm a supporter of revealed apologetics. And every time I've interacted with you, Eli, it's been a pleasure. So keep up the good work. Well, I very much greatly appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, once again, guys, uh, thank you so much for listening in. And uh, once again, check out uh, Ken Sample's uh, books and articles. Uh, you can check out Reasons to Believe as well, where there are a lot of resources there also. Uh, that's it for this episode. Uh, until next time, take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.